Todd, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you. Carrie, it's always great to be with you. Looking forward to today. Well, we're going to do the impossible here. We're going to try to recreate a conversation you and I had for about an hour. Uh, I was driving down to Toronto. You were wherever you were. And we were just talking about the future of the church. And it was so rich and so good. Number one, I was sad that uh, my meeting was up and the ride was over and the conversation wasn't longer. And then I said, you know, I think this is the kind of conversation because we don't we don't 100 percent see things the same way. And I think heading into an election year, that's probably a good thing to get people who don't always agree to have like friendships and conversations, but it wasn't a deep disagreement. It was just like really interesting perspectives on the future of the church. So thanks for being up to it. Yeah. Well, let's be real clear. You and I are going to be friends after this podcast. So there's not, <laughs> not a question about that. <laughs> yeah, you bet we are. You bet we are. Um, let's start, let's start uh, broadly because as the um, you know, founder of Exponential and the president of that, uh, you meet with just tons of church planters, so many church leaders. Uh, so we are roughly six months into coronavirus now, the disruption of 2020. What are the pain points that you are seeing with, um, yeah, this world that we're all living in all of a sudden. Yeah, I think, Carrie, you know, uh, for sure, uh, let me start with the surprise. We kind of assumed the financial hit would be greater, and I'm sure we'll circle back and talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so yeah. the churches that we're working with so far are enduring okay on the financial side of things. Do you tend to, just to clarify, does that mean you're working mostly with growing churches, like even in normal times? I think that uh, growing churches are probably more naturally drawn to what we're doing. You know, and the language we use at Exponential, a level one church is subtracting, a level two is plateauing, a level three is adding. And then we're most interested in the reproducing and multiplying right. part. But you could be reproducing or multiplying no matter what your attendance trends are. So right. that can be 100 and you're planting churches or, or whatever. But you're looking at churches that are planting, churches that are multiplying uh, churches right. that are starting their own networks, et cetera, et cetera. And, and even though you can, you you have churches across that whole spectrum that are reproducing. In general, the ones that have the bigger, you know, the budgets that are adding and growing are they put a little bit more money into the reproducing and church planting. So it's mm. it's uh, that's okay. So you're saying financially, it's maybe a little bit brighter than you thought it would be. And I mean, that, that, well, the day we're recording this, that's still true of the stock market. It's still almost true of the economy, although there's a massive inequality that's probably opening up. Yeah, I, I probably have more conversations, Carrie, and it doesn't mean it's representative of the whole market, but yeah. I have more conversations with pastors who are telling me that while they're not meeting, their expenses are down. But their income has, you know, if it's not held the same, it's it's not gone down as much as the expenses right. have. So I hear pastors over and over that they're doing they're doing OK financially. And that's yeah, I've had the same story. It's like so giving may be flat or down a little bit, but expenses are down even more. Right. So our and we'll talk about this in a little bit. Uh, my big concern is the future of where that's headed. You know, okay. what happens if the finances do start to go down? I don't think we've seen that pain point yet. Now, within what we are seeing the way things are, you know, you, you had the up and down of the attendance of online and how do you count online? You've written a lot of good stuff about that. So um, I at at one point, I was hearing and seeing a lot of people concerned and talking about the trend, you know, how rapidly those trends were changing. Yeah. Um, I think we've gotten past that some, at least in the conversations I'm having uh, with people. Probably the two biggest things that that I think for our audience are, uh, are wrestling with, one is the engagement piece. Mm -hmm. It's how do you engage, how do you do disciple making in a virtual kind of context? How do you engage people beyond just a Netflix kind of atmosphere where you can binge, listen, or watch, you know, whatever you want at this point? And again, that's a good and a bad. If I if I want a playlist kind of church where I can just pick and choose on any given day who to tune into, I, I've got that today. Yep. And so you you've got that dimension of the engagement, uh, you know, piece that's that is. Uh, that's going on. And I, I would say that's the big one. The second one is the whole debate over new normals. You know, right. what, as, as people are trying to look ahead at the end of the day, if you believe, you know, uh, more of the experts 
it, it's less than 2% of any sector that really sets the pace and does the map making and pioneers the future. So what we've done is we've thrown 100% of churches into this chaos the last six months. And, and whatever the new normals become, and we can debate how significant, is it a radical new normal? Is it a partial new normal? Let's just agree there's a new normal, okay? okay. I mean, there is a new normal coming. The question is, who's going to shape it? What is it? And if only one to one and a half percent of churches are kind of the pioneering map makers for that new normal, who should we even be listening to, watching? What are the trends? And so I do have a lot of conversations with churches where the very first thing someone asks me, what are you seeing? What's the trend? What are you mm -hmm. seeing? And that's all trying to, I think, look into the future around the next corner at, at what, you know, some insight into what the next new normal is. I think that's where we're going to have a lot of fun in this conversation because that's what you and I were ping ponging back and forth quite a bit in, the, in that phone call. And of course, it changes all the time. Uh, I want to ask you, because David Kinneman and I talk about this quite a bit, but any, any sense of how the mental health or emotional, spiritual well-being of uh, church leaders is in this season. I know last time we talked, you said what a lot of people have said, you've never worked harder in your life. Like we've all, we've all been there. We've all been pushing hard. How, how are people holding up under the pressure from what yeah, you can see? I, I actually think Kerry, that's a huge concern. You know, we just yeah. had our annual board meeting and it's one of the top concerns our board talked about actually was yeah. what's it look like in this coming season. We're a church planting and multiplication organization. Which is stressful to begin with. It's stressful to begin with, but part of what our board talked about is, you know what, the just all of the stats are not positive. And, you know, I, you and I have talked about this. I think every organization has to make assumptions about the future. You're making assumptions about the future yep. that are going to play into how you do things. And I think what all of us have to figure out is how to how do we make our own assumptions informed by what's going on, but not just based on what everybody else is doing? And I think this issue of mental health and and things in the future, we've got to pay attention to it. I mean, I I don't have some prophetic look into a magic ball, but I, I do believe the one assumption we're making at Exponential, things are going to get worse before they get better. What makes you think that they're going to get worse? Because you're not the lone voice on that. I mean, we had Scott Harrison on and he thinks we're into two or three years of prolonged recession, um, that giving could go down, et cetera. What makes you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? And, and I, those two things you just mentioned, independent of him saying it, I, I would affirm that's a, that we're making those assumptions. Me, me too. And I, I seem to be a minority voice. I'm like, I expect the real estate market to collapse. I expect the economy to struggle. And I'm like the only, and I'm an optimist. So yeah. well, look, the, he, I mean, I'm not going to answer your question like quantitatively, but yeah, let yeah. me qualitatively. Oh, well, none of uh, us, just for the record, surprise, surprise, neither Todd nor I are psychologists, economists, or anything like that. We're just a couple of people trying to figure stuff out. But for what it's worth, what's, what's your take on that? I, I would, here are the factors that I'm kind of putting into why I think that's the case. Um, and these aren't in order of significance. We live at a very divided time. I mean, yeah. I mean, we're fighting over face masks. I think face masks are dividing churches. Wait till mandatory vaccines come in in a few months. I mean, if we think mm -hmm. we're fighting over face masks, it just seems like division is going to get greater, not less. You know, you start saying, how do you predict less division and more unity and things? That one's a hard one to get your head around. If you if you just straight go after the finances of what's going on at this point, um, we're adding trillions of dollars of debt in this country at this point yeah. by writing checks to things. And and at the same time, look what the stock markets at an all time high interest rates are at an all time low. If if you didn't know covid was going on and you just were an alien visiting this place or something, you'd look and you'd say, Wow. Uh, unemployment before COVID's really low. We're pumping all this money in. Interest rates are low. Stock market's high. And because the interest rates are low, house prices of if you just look at the peak of house prices going up, you know, even if it's a long term up, what goes up comes down. So mm -hmm. it's gone up so quickly 
it just seems by the laws of physics, you'd see it come down. Um, I was, you know, again, different articles, but I was just looking at one earlier this week on um, uh, delinquency rates on mortgages. And you can look at what happens to house prices by delinquency rates. And if you just look at that statistic right now, what you just mentioned a few minutes ago, I mean, we ought to anticipate a 10, 20 percent drop in average house prices here. Oh, just that's what I'm thinking. 10 or 20. We're in the same range. I think I get you see a 20 percent drop. Right. So if, if, if you just take that as a financial backdrop, the psychology of house prices going down, the government can't pump a lot more money into things. No. And churches have been holding up on their finances. So if you if you just play out, if you just play the game of a futurist hat for a minute, how would church be different right now, six months later after COVID started, if in fact giving had fallen by 50% yeah. six months ago? And if you just, if you play that into the future and you say, what would change if over the next six to 12 months, we actually do see giving in churches start to drop? That becomes really painful really quickly in, in the church world. And so if you, for me, if you take the external factors of house prices soaring and interest rates low and just the different combination of things, it's hard to imagine that we're not in for a couple of years of difficult financial times. And now how does the church fare in that on top of COVID becomes the question. And I, I'm not a doom and gloom person, Carrie. No, I'm I, not either. And I'm shocked to be saying this stuff out loud because I'm an optimist. Like I really am. I'm 95% optimist and 5% other. Um, but I really think that realism is your friend when you're looking into the future. And, you know, you just got to prepare for it because if you're prepared, then I think you're in better shape. And I hope that's all wrong. I agree. I happen to agree with you. I don't think you're fundamentally misguided. And I I certainly hope that's that's wrong. But if it's not, then what do you do? Um, Back to the the mental strain of that. It's funny because, you know, lots of people have studied, um, you know, Luther and uh, the plague and the bubonic plague and the Spanish flu how the church responded. It would be interesting. I haven't seen any articles on this. Maybe you have to see how the pastors responded during the great depression or even, you know, go a little bit deeper on Bonhoeffer again and look at the second world war and the division of that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I haven't, I haven't read a whole lot about the church in tough economic times, say through the 1930s after that, that huge, you know, spike the roaring twenties and then, and then the great depression. But uh, yeah, I think we could be in for, as Andy Crouch says, a little bit of a, a winter, if not an ice age, a little ice age in terms of things not getting better. Um, what are uh, back to mental health? So if you can see pastors who are because uh, you're in touch with just hundreds of church leaders on a regular basis, but who are weathering this storm, all things being equal, relatively well, they they have a strong faith. They're not zombies all the time. Things at home are going okay. And, and they're managing to stay on their feet mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, any thoughts on some of the things that they're doing right now? I mean, I've got a whole regimen I've followed for years that I have doubled down on. And, you know, I had a couple of low points. You feel the emotions like everybody. And I'm like, okay, need to sleep a little bit more. I need to work a little bit less. I need to exercise a little bit more. Um, you know, my, my devotional routine really doesn't change from season to season. Being off the road has been great, but, um, you know, constantly pivoting, we're pivoting again as a company right now. Um, that takes its toll. It's busy. What, what are either your disciplines or other disciplines you've seen that are helping leaders right now? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think, um, if I, just personally to begin with, like what you and I were talking about previously, I, I am... an optimist. I am very, I like to tell people I'm serotonin neutral. I I was given a good dose of serotonin. So it is hard to get me down. Like it's hard to feel down. And I got to tell you the last six months, I found myself down. Like, I mean, you you just have the, wow, I want to get out of this funk kind of thing. And, and so I know if a person who's naturally up and not down is down, like it, it's, it's gotta be a struggle for, for many. Yeah. Um, and it's more than just positive thinking because you remember, remember social media in the first month after COVID it's like, you know, 
uh, faith over fear, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, immediately within my spirit, I thought, okay, um, we're, we're going to have to go deeper than that. We're just going to have to go deeper than that. But fortunately, you know, our faith went to the cross and it ended up in an empty tomb. So I think Christianity can withstand that. Um, how, how have you found yourself six months later still on your feet? What's helped you turn it around? Yeah, I, I think for me personally, and I'll share what I'm hearing from a few other people. I, um, I like most of the leaders out there right now, I found myself busier than ever yeah. a couple of months into this. It, it, what, you would have thought there'd be like a vacation or a rest time. And the whole idea of pivoting, when you just said a minute ago, our company's pivoting again now. It's like, you know, in the last six months, I told people two months into COVID, we had done more strategic planning in two months than we've done in the 15 year history of exponential. Yeah. And, yeah. And, thing is there's a fun part to that and then there's the reality of the soberness of when you're strategic planning and you realize how much needs to pivot and how much needs to change and it's uncertain and it's confusing and so what the way i'll play that into what i'm trying to do i love new things i love new opportunities i love getting into the new and i'm having to just keep bringing myself back to simplify 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 how do i try to create margin by simplifying. And I got to tell you, Carrie, I don't know how to, I mean, because the more we try to simplify, it seems like the more the opportunities are there. So I, I, that's, that's our current pivot. It's like, this is something that a week ago I didn't know was there. I don't know what'll become of it, but it was a great opportunity. And I'm, you know, I just literally got off a call with my staff and I said, okay, I think there's a major refocus coming from the next few months. And you know, here's what it's a great opportunity, but you know, opportunities aren't workless. There's a lot of work involved in them and you just think you got a formula and then it breaks. Right. Our team in April, we did this season of strategic planning. We had 11 pivot priorities for, we, we treated the quarter from April, May, and June to the end of June as a piloting season for us with new things. Great. And it, it, it was simultaneously exhilarating and exhausting. Yeah. And and so I have found myself just feeling like I need rest and then margins the other thing. The huge thing I'm trying to be on right now is the idea of margin and daily disciplines leading to margin kind of thing. Um, I was on a call with Matt Chandler a couple of weeks ago and Matt was describing the discipline that he has where <clears throat> He schedules time like if you and when you and I get off the call, if Matt were on with us, he would schedule 10 minutes after the call to just pray and reflect on the call. Good for him. A building in. So uh, the issue of margin in the middle of what feels like the busiest season of life, that's the tension. But it's what I know the code that's got to be broken for me is this idea of simplifying margins. So. Well, and I agree. I mean, it's not I'm writing a book on that right now that'll come out next year, but it's not it's not a luxury. It's a necessity. Right. And and back to your point, let, let's OK, let's just assume that our 10, 20 percent correction is a thing next year. And a lot of the leaders listening would say, yeah, my expenses are way down. Giving's down a little bit, but there's margin. Well, save a lot of that. Right. And that way, you know, we had a cash runway as a small company heading into coronavirus, which we just kept in case it was a rainy day. And this is a rainy day. And, you know, it was very helpful to have that and not to have to lay anybody off. But if it gets a little bit worse, it gets worse. And then if it doesn't, well, you get a little bit of a cash runway that will buy you a few more months or half a year or something like that. Uh, that you can use to pour into people who are in need and, and ministry and future priorities. You guys, one of your pivots was you had one of the biggest series of online events scheduled for the fall of 2020 in the history of Exponential. And of course, most of that got relatively wiped out. So how did you go from being, and I mean, how many, how many people go to Exponential? Like 5,000? I've been there a bunch of times. Is it Cumulatively over the year, it's 10,000, about 5,000 in Orlando, 5,500 in Orlando, and then another four or five spread through the other events in the year too. Yeah. So you're a physical events company and right. you're going to ramp that up with roundtables across Europe, if I remember right, and uh, yeah. across America. And then boom, COVID hits, borders are closed. And 
your physical gathering plans are out the window. So what, what did your pivot involve and how has that gone so far? Yeah, I, uh, let me explain a, one part of the back of that and then I'll explain it. If you go back three years ago, we started seeing the need to be more decentralized, to go from the bigger events to more smaller events, more online things. So we were already in the transition to more online uh, different things. Three years ago, we put it in our plan that we were going to wor- start working toward a uh, hundred roundtables, smaller roundtable events. And so last year, we piloted the first of those roundtable events. They went fantastic. And, and so we said, okay, we have a three-year plan to ramp up to a hundred or more roundtables. We officially decided that one year ago, in the fall of last year, we decided that. COVID hits and we said, well, we don't have three years. Uh, let's do 100 roundtables in the fall of 2020. And this is the beautiful thing about online, Kerry, as you know. We're able to plan the smaller events, a little bit driven by COVID. Okay, maybe people don't, can only have 50 people at their gathering. And so let's plan a gathering that would have critical mass with as few of, you know, as 50 people. But let's do it in a way that if we need to move it online, those same events can be done online with Zoom breakout rooms. And so uh, it has been amazing. We, uh, we are re- we're recruiting the 100 host locations, even in the middle of COVID this fall. It's easier to do the smaller things. We're now pivoting into the spring to say, all right, instead of 100 roundtables in the spring, what's two or 300 roundtables look like? Wow. And so we're, we're very much going to the smaller. Now, that's also in the context to go back three years there's 3,100 counties in the United States. We want to see a mul- what we call a multiplication activist in all 3,100 counties in America. Well, well, you would know how many counties there are in America. This is why I love talking to you. There's 3,100 counties and 100 independent municipalities. So really 3,200 of those. And so we've, it has been in our plan. How do we get these multiplication activists in all 3,200 local jurisdictions where does that drive you to on more online and more smaller decentralized things? So I I desperately want to believe, Carrie, that in five years when we look back, COVID will be an amazing catalytic thing in our ministry that took what was going to be a three to five year runway and forced us into a three to five month runway. That's incredible. And, and I think, I think those are great examples. What, what are you seeing in the church right now? And again, cause you got your finger on the pulse, but you can point to, because one of the arguments I've made and you can agree or disagree is that a lot of what we've seen in the church world in the first six months hasn't been innovation. It's been adaptation. None of us had a choice, right? Buildings are closed. Cities are shut down. So you can't meet. So you pivot to online, but that really wasn't innovative. It was necessity. It's like pivot or die. And, and what I saw, and again, Again, please bring your own opinion to this, was a lot of experimentation in the spring. April, May, people are going Facebook Lives and let's try this and let's do Zoom prayer and let's do this. And what I've watched is a narrowing of the options. Now it's summer and people were tired and the whole deal. But it almost feels like what used to be, if you think about what still a lot of churches were doing, it was like, come to Sunday, come to Sunday, come to Sunday, right? We got a few midweek things, go do your small group. But it's like, this is the thing, Sunday morning, you better be there for weekend services. And it feels like six months into this now, most churches have been to come to our stream, come to our stream, come to our stream. And a lot of the midweek stuff have gone silent, except for a few social posts here or there, or the occasional message along the way. And so we've, we're almost now mimicking what we used to do in person by betting it all on an hour on Sunday. And I'm like, where's the innovation? So number one, I'd love your critique of that, whether you would beg to differ on some of those points. And number two, I'd love to see what you are seeing that you think, yeah, no, this counts as innovation, not adaptation. What are you seeing that's fresh and and exciting? Right. I think uh, I would agree with everything you just said. And when we look ahead, if you, if you really try to put your finger on what is innovation in what we're doing, um, in my world of church planting, I think 
it's for if you pretend you're a church planter for a minute and you were going to launch a church this year and COVID hits. Yeah, I have friends who are doing that right now. You know, what do you do? It's usually the part of building a launch team that's face to face gatherings. I mean, <laughs> it's very difficult. But when you look at some of the innovative things that are going on online with church plants where, you know, the gaming community uh, one of the guys we work with is a key player in the in the uh, national gaming community, and there there's just amazing things going on that allows us to take the church into locations that we wouldn't normally get to. I think the question in that, Carrie, is you know without getting into a debate over the ecclesiology of what is church and what's not yeah, church. Sure enough, I actually think that the question of what is church is going to become one of the key questions coming out of COVID. Hmm. Because I think what is happening right now, even in the innovation of what's happening right now, I would characterize it personally way more in the mission field category, not the church category. That, that we're able to deploy missionaries and the message into places that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get. And, and to me, that's more of a missionary impulse for evangelism, which is fantastic. But now you reach into an area and it's still going to fall back to what's church. Hmm. So is it, and again, it isn't our debate for today, but if somebody does the killer best digital thing you could ever do in the history of the world at this point, and what happens every week is somebody tunes into a digital thing. Is it church or not? That is I, an I, active debate. It and and I think it's going to become personally. I'm predicting it's going to become more of a debate, not less, as we move into the future. Because the new the new normal, it seems like the new normal is going to involve greater digital than pre COVID. Correct. So moving into greater digital, and all of a sudden. Churches are even going to think about, why do I even have a physical building? Why do I need it? Why not be completely digital? It, it, at some point, we've got to go through that question of what the, you know, what physically is church. And I think the other, your question about what are we seeing and what's the innovation, I, I have to separate just candidly at this point as, as a futurist in the church planting world. I have to separate out what I want to have happen, you know, versus the reality of what might happen. Well, let's of. play both games. I want yeah. to hear both, uh, both perspectives. Yeah. I think if, if you could just go back, pick a time period, go back a decade. Yep. And if you look what's going on a decade ago, the mega church movements 25 years into the, or church growth movement leading to the mega church movement, it has been, by definition, a movement because we've gone from less than 100 churches over a couple of thousand to thousands of churches that way. You know, it's got a movement characteristic to it. The multi-site church 10 years ago was right in the movement part of it. It had gone from less than 100 multi-site churches to 7,000 multi-site churches or whatever the number was back a decade ago. I think it, what we started hoping for a decade ago at, at, at Exponential was we were going to move from mega to multi to micro. Hmm. We even wrote a paper about it 10 years ago. It was titled From Mega to Multi to Micro. And we hypothesized in this paper, there's probably a bunch of prominent mega churches sitting around a table right now. They're working on the future of micro sites and micro churches and and, you know, they're going to be the pace setters of the future sort of thing. So there's a part of me for a decade now, our, our mission at Exponential is to see multiplication become the normative measure of success in the church. Like it's what how people measure success. That requires the church to be a missionary sending agency, to see every person as an everyday missionary with an everyday mission field that the way I like to say it, Carrie, is we're flipping the equation upside down. Instead of the come to us and help us do our thing, we can do it, you can help us with our thing. The church as a, the Home Depot motto, you can do it, how do we help you do our thing? The church as the sending agency. Well, here's the, here's the big tension that gets into the prediction of the future. I like to just say, follow the money. If you take the model in the U.S. church, 
and tell me how much money you're going to spend on a church plant or a church in a given area. And I'll tell you roughly how many people that church is reaching. Really? It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a do you, have, do you have formulas you can share? Like uh, ratios well, you can share? Numbers we can show like in a, in a suburban kind of environment. Right. If you, again, if you go back, let's just look what's happened a decade ago. About a decade ago, it was about $1,000 per person. If you took attendance of a new church three months after it started, and let's say they're running 120 people, they spent about $120,000 to get there. Wow. And it and now play it forward. If you look at a church's budget, we're talking a typical strong attractional church. Sure. If that church has 80 full-time equivalent staff, mm-hmm. they've probably got, I mean, you can do the math at $1,000. It's it's about that $1,000 a person. You can predict their budget in a pretty uncanny way. And it, if, and not to be, this is as detailed as I get, I promise. If, if one full-time equivalent paid staff person can minister to about 100 people. It's why the average church in the United States runs about 90 people, because if they can ever afford to hire the second staff person, they will, but they never can afford it. And one person can only minister to 100 people. So they get stuck below 100 people. They don't invest the money to try to break that 100 barrier. So money is a I mean, money drives the model of church in the United States. And if you say what are the what are the biggest expenditures in church? Buildings and full-time staff. Totally. And guess what? The mega church and the multi-church, the church growth movement with the multi thing is perfectly lined up for that kind of model. And that's if, one of the reasons it flourished over the last 25-30 years. Exactly. And now when we get into the pivoting into the future, if the future is more the micro, let's say it's either digital or micro, either yeah. one, digital or micro, how do you fund that model? Do you need all the same number of full-time staff people? Do you need $10 million building debts? I actually think it's the elephant in the room right now, Carrie, that if we're, if we're looking into a future that's going to be way more digital and more people and more people not coming back to physical church, how do you fund that model when it's got a well-established funding model and, and, and now all of a sudden that future of digital church and micro churches, uh, you know, micro churches are perfectly suited for bivocational. It's, mm-hmm. you know, if we were betting on a future at Exponential right now, that future would be a combination of a hybrid digital, but micro bivo, that the expression of church would be more micro churches bivocationally led. Do you think, because this is fascinating, and by the way, the older I've gotten and the more I think about this stuff, the more I used to be dismissive of patterns like that and be like, oh, I'm the exception to the rule. And then I realized, no, we're all playing within the rules. Like there are just certain patterns to human behavior. Uh, There's certain ratios that just always seem to be true and you can break out of them, but then you need to intentionally have a different model that that springs you out of those. So I think, you know, most of you should go back right now. This is what I'd be doing and like re-listening to what Todd said or maybe accessing the transcripts and going, wait a minute. Uh, that was really, really good. Do you think, because one of the, and, and maybe these, these are just my friends, but I've talked to some of the churches that are seeing revenue spikes, some of the churches that are seeing big online audience spikes. They're also, um, you know, they've got more money. It's not just because expenses are low, um, but some of this online momentum that they have, even without them really trying or having a strategy has translated into, oh, now I'm going to give to your church because I'm, I'm watching that. Do you think that there is a potential to see those churches explode in the micro field? Like Levi Lusco, I've talked to him and he's like, yeah, we're getting church members now in Pennsylvania. And like, he's in Montana. And, uh, you know, you talk to Mike Todd at uh, Transformation Church. It's been explosive growth. Elevation is growing. And I mean, some, some, and, you know, Craig Rochelle at Life Church, some of them are now becoming national churches. But would it be possible for those churches and their smaller multi-site siblings to have micro expressions across the country at a fraction of the cost of opening a campus? Like, do you think that's another possibility or you think that probably won't happen? 
I think that's absolutely going to happen. Like I, I would think, and, and let's let's make a distinction, Carrie, between a micro site mm-hmm. and a micro church. There's a lot of language being thrown around. Sure. These days. But I, just for this conversation, let's say a micro site isn't it's the next natural progression beyond multi site. It's still the same elder board under the same governance umbrella. It's not right. an independent church with its own elders and its own spiritual covering. There's some reason that each example you would give, you know, a church in California has a site in Pennsylvania. Well, what's the connection between them? And and if it is actually a legal connection, a governance connection, then let's say that's a microsite thing. Why in the world would that not be the next natural progression? Yeah. If you're somebody who's done mega church and you've gotten the church big and then you go multi-site to spread it out in your geographic area, microsite just gives you that next, you know, root system to go out farther. So it, it certainly seems like that would be the case. Part of why I say I think we're going to be headed into a season, though, of words matter, the difference between a church and a missionary or, or a church and a church leader and a mission field and a mission and then a micro church and a micro site, somewhere there's a distinction between something that's a connection to your church right. and an actual God-honoring, Jesus-subscribed church. Like it's, and what, for me, here's what the tension I wrestle with. Um, Larry Wachemeyer spent a year from our team writing a book called The Mobilization Flywheel. And he he looked at both church fathers, church history, the Bible, the ecclesiology of if you were going to try to come up with like, what are the minimums? Like, what are they kind of thing? And it's messy. Oh my goodness. If you know, it's kind of like the face mask issue of people arguing over what things uh, ought to be there. But here's what really captivated me in the middle of that work is this simple question. What if, or does Jesus intend that every man, woman, and child have a healthy church family, not a church connection, but an actual healthy functioning family through the church? And it's really important to answer that question first, because if the answer is yes, then the question is, what happens if we make the requirements too onerous to where we don't have churches where we need to have churches because we've set the bar so high. You got to go to five years of college to get your thing. And, you know, we we don't even set up a way that the laity can be mobilized into starting churches. So on one hand, we keep some people from having a healthy church family because we set the bar so high. But now what happens in the other end of the spectrum? What if the guy who drives the shuttle bus from the airport to the rental car place. What if he gets fired up in this new digital age and he's got his TV playing in the shuttle bus and he say he prescribes, I am the church pastor of my shuttle bus. I run the, I mean, you laugh, but seriously. I'm laughing with you. Yeah. Like what can, is a shuttle bus driver who might interact with somebody on his shuttle bus for five minutes in the history of a shuttle bus, is that a church? Right. And I that's where, for me, that is the coolest ever mission. If that guy sees himself as a missionary and his mission field is the shuttle bus, that's the coolest thing ever. What if we mobilized every person in our church thinking that way? But if as soon as we allow that guy to declare his shuttle bus as a church— Now, if I go back to that question, does Jesus intend that every man, woman, and child have a healthy functioning family called the church that they're connected to, then I've got to carry a burden of responsibility that if I'm letting somebody just declare anything and everything as a church, I'm not necessarily being obedient to what Jesus intends with things. And I'm not here to say where the line is. I'm here to say, welcome to the times we live in right now, where the mega church, honestly, you know this. Go look at a hundred different ones. Lift up the hood. Ninety percent of what's under the hood's the same engine. It looks a little bit different on the outside. The multi-site church, lift up the hood. It's the same way. This future of microsites, micro church, it's all boutique. It's all. It isn't. A, 
everything's the same. It's not a franchise model. It's boutique. And and that that is chaotic. Well, so many thoughts to that. First, where there's not a lot of growth or innovation, I think you get explanation in theology. So if you look at the late 20th and early 20th, 21st century, you see the plateau and declining of a lot of churches, but an awful lot of very strong opinions about, well, this is the right view on that, that is the right view on this. Contrast that to the New Testament. In the New Testament, and you know, people could quibble with this explanation of the New Testament, but the church was being born and they figured out what it meant as it happened and afterwards. It's like, are Gentiles in, are Gentiles not in? I don't know. What do you mean you can go beyond Jerusalem? Seriously, you can go beyond Jerusalem? I didn't know that. And like the church is advancing and the explanation and the theology is being written in real time as they try to figure that out. And I wonder if the period you're describing is like that. And then secondly, you know, I was listening to uh, one of the the guy who's in charge of YouTube. Uh, he was interviewed. Gosh, I listen to so many podcasts. I can't think of it. If I do, I'll put it in the show notes. But uh, he was interviewed uh, about YouTube's explosive growth. And he said uh, he wanted to get a billion hours of watch time. But the innovation of YouTube was, you know, we went from cable, well, three networks, network television, three three main networks to cable television, which was 300. But then the innovation in YouTube was it wasn't Hollywood moguls with millions of dollars creating content. It was Todd in Virginia on his iPhone and moreover, his kids on their iPhones creating content. So suddenly you had millions, if not billions of input points. And the future you're describing sounds a little more ground up. It sounds a little more like the shuttle bus driver just going, you know what, I'm a content creator. I'm I'm somebody, maybe I'm streaming Fertic or maybe I'm streaming someone else, but um, this is a thing. And we are moving to an age where the power doesn't stay with just a handful of individuals. It's actually an empowered body, which in many ways, I think you can argue, long story short, is very consistent with New Testament theology. There's very few people listening who would deny the priesthood of all believers, right? Well, we really haven't had that what if that is what springs up? We are doing, you know, we're not a giant church, about 1,500 people pre-COVID on a Sunday morning. But, you know, during the last few months, and we've been online for years, but as things have grown online for us, there were numerous people in London, England, watching messages in Toronto, Canada, debating back and forth in the chat. It's like, well, what does that become? Well, what if they start meeting in a pub or a restaurant or someone's home? you know, when lockdown ends? And then do they become a micro expression? Do they become a micro site? How does that actually work? These are really interesting questions that we haven't faced at the level that we could face them before. And it seems like, Carrie, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. Like, it it seems like we need to be going after a lot of these things simultaneously. If yes. Why not go after as much digital as we can get to get the message out. Um, why not go after microsites? Why not, you know, fill in the blank, go after these things? Um, and and it, so I think they're positive things. I think the question still comes back to, at some point, we've got to be thinking the engagement part of church, the healthy mm -hmm. function part of church. And I'm not saying that through the lens of church equals a steeple with brick and mortar building. I'm talking the relational part of it. Yeah, I streaming and watching as opposed to connecting and community and evangelism and sort of the, the, the central yeah. tenets of, of Christian expression when the church comes together. See, it's it. Sometimes I go through the men, just for fun, the mental exercise of okay, if I could be the king of all of a sudden, Craig Groeschel and Steve Furtick and Andy Stanley, you know, five of the top speaker, you guys who can really deliver the goods on speaking, okay. I all of a sudden get to be in charge of them through exponential. I get to build a strategy for church, and I get what I get as an asset is their voice. Hmm. Now, how would I take Stephen, just, just pick on Stephen, how would I take his world and his strength and what he's doing and absolutely leverage it into, in, in what I'm, in my mission at Exponential to see 16% of churches multiplying into movements, okay? Um, I don't have any problem with any really guys who can kill it on the speaking part and have big audiences, I'm going to leverage that. I mean, why chase, why push rocks uphill when you can chase them down a hill? So <laughs> yeah. I, 
I am going to say, how do I get their voices out there anywhere and everywhere I can? Television, Netflix, I'm thinking Netflix channels. I'm, I mean, I'm going to go for getting their voice out there. But at some point, I got to anchor it back in. So where do I draw the line on church? If Just go back 20 years when there's no internet and the, were there voices? You know, Charles Stanley. I mean, pick three mm-hmm. or four from 20 years ago. Char, just, let's just take Charles Stanley, still speaking today. Millions of people have listened to him online, or now yeah. online, on TV or on the radio. So does that mean he's got a church of a million people because a million people have listened to him? And I could go, I mean, if my Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really great analogy. To by millions of people. And, and here's the thing. I don't want to sound like I'm being, we need to do that. We need to get them listened to by as many people as we can. But at some point, the goal isn't just getting the message out there in ones and zero digits online. There's a transformational relational thing. And that's why I think we got to keep bringing it back to not locked into the models of the past of big buildings with whatever, but whether it's microsites, micro churches, multi-sites, whatever they might be, there's still got to, in my opinion, there's got to be the relational life on life, how you bring together, I mean, a healthy, if we just use that metaphor of a healthy, functional family, most people don't have a healthy, functional family in their life. Truth. Most people don't. And guess what? The question we've got to struggle with is the church offering that. And and if I do have an optimistic thing about microsites and micro churches and possibly the pivoted church of the future, I actually think the opportunity is there for the church to be much more of a functioning family when you've decentralized it into cells Mm-hmm. as opposed to something that you come to on Sunday morning. Hey, Exponential, this is Peyton Jones. I'm the content director here at Exponential. I want to thank you for joining us today for this conversation. You know, it's funny because uh, I've had the privilege of working with Todd Wilson now. Um, been working with Exponential for a number of years uh, on and off, um, mainly volunteering Uh, but working up close with them, uh, I will tell you one thing, and that is that Todd Wilson is who he says he is, which is cool. Because for me, getting to work with someone who just always is thinking multiplication, and he won't say this, but he was a nuclear engineer, and he's kind of a genius. So when you get to know him, you realize that may be one of the smartest dudes I've ever met. But having him on our side, to put it in those terms, on the side of the kingdom to advance the kingdom and multiply churches is huge. So, uh, and equally so, Kerry Newhoff is just fascinating in his own right. I mean, one of the reasons that people come back to that show every week isn't because uh, he's just a good interviewer. I mean, Kerry himself is a fascinating dude. He's very prolific. He writes a lot of blogs that are about the future of the church, things that are cutting edge. I remember the first time I ever read something by Kerry, um, I used to run a magazine called Church Planner Magazine. We used to call him the, the red-haired guy. We didn't know his name, and we couldn't pronounce it or spell it, so nobody could remember. It was back before Kerry got big, but he used to write articles that he would allow us to publish, and we interviewed him, and uh, so he'd always be that red-haired guy. Let's, let's run that red-haired guy again. He gets it. So uh, there's a couple of uh, opportunities that you have here. We've just got about just under 10 minutes to take some questions. And already one question has come into the chat. And I want to answer that. I mean, whenever you're talking on this level, um, and by the way, this is a part of a bigger conversation that will continue next week. So be sure to join us. And next week, of course, Todd Wilson will be with us. He's actually on, uh, we say a leave, uh, we say a sabbatical, um, yeah, but you know, he's Todd, he's going to be here next week and he's doing all kinds of things. So uh, come join us next week and you'll be able to unpack, particularly as the conversation goes deeper and deeper. Um, it gets deeper and deeper as you would expect with Carrie, as you would expect with Todd. And uh, it's really an, a knockout conversation about the future of the church, where we're headed, where we've been, and where we're going. But anyways, our first question, and be sure to pop these in the chat, and we'll take them as they come. But uh, the first question is, 
Tim Keller believes there needs to be some minimum threshold number for the sake of sustainability. What are your thoughts on this with respect to microchurch? Well, the, the, the interesting thing about that is I get where Tim's coming from. If you're talking about a church that's your traditional, uh, you know, maybe community church, you know, uh, the traditional model of church, then yes, that is something that um, I understand why there's a sustainable minimum threshold number of people to keep the thing going. But uh, for me, I was a missionary and churches to me, and forgive the train coming here, I live uh, on a train track. So uh, you're going to hear it. If you've ever listened to Church Planner Podcast, you know this train well. Well, it comes with me onto this show. But uh, if you if you think about what a missionary would do, a missionary over on the field, they're not thinking minimal uh, minimum threshold number. And microchurch, let me say this, microchurch, we talk about microchurch. People have misunderstood microchurch. They think there's megachurch and the opposite must be microchurch. So they, they misunderstand and maybe misapply the concept of microchurch to being a model of church. Microchurch, and let me say this very, very clearly, is not a model of churches. So it's not like uh, a church plant. It's not like a church startup. It's not like a, a mega church. It's not like a missional church. It's not like a community church. Microchurch describes an approach to how you meet. It's not a model. You can be a mega church. Let's say Rick Warren. Rick Warren uh, could do microchurch. Um, in fact, Rick Warren has, uh, I don't know if you know this, he has a 200% uh, ratio of small groups to um, his Sunday morning. So in other words, he has double the amount of people in small groups as attend on a Sunday morning. So in a sense, that's kind of touching microchurch because what microchurch is, is it's smaller gatherings that meet around mission. Mission is the key, and the activation of every believer in their gifts is what happens. They employ those gifts on mission. So microchurch means when the church comes away from another central gathering and meets together to do mission sometime uh, during the week, but are part of a bigger collective. So in the difference between that and small groups is that it's centered around mission. It's not centered around coffee or donuts or brownies and a Bible study. It's you find your affinity around an actual mission. So I, I, I just wanted to, um, to really uh, say to you that no matter what church you're in, you can, you can adopt the, the micro church approach. You don't have to stop being the kind of church you are and say, well, I believe in micro church. Well, Microchurch is an approach. You don't have to stop being the community church you are on Sunday morning on First Avenue, you know, that reaches out and throws boutiques and does all the things you do and Christmas plays and is more traditional and uses the pipe organ. You can still approach your community using the microchurch approach because what, what microchurch really is about is gift activation, believer deployment, and mission-centric uh, evangelism and gathering. So uh, hopefully that kind of clears up a little bit of mis, uh, miscommunication. So my thoughts on Tim Keller's uh, minimum threshold number of gathering for microchurch is that it doesn't apply here. And that's simply because your church can be any model and still utilize uh, microchurch um, approach um, to uh, reaching your community, uh, activating every uh, believer's gifts, yada, yada. So I don't want to beat that dead horse, but I think that's one of the key misunderstandings about microchurch right now when people, is they just think it's a model and they think, well, we're not a microchurch, so we can do that. Um, every church out there today can start utilizing and harnessing microchurch uh, approaches. I mean, it, you could just do it. Right. You could say we're going to start a film club and we're going to meet or we're going to start a discussion group here in this or we're going to reach out to homeless in this part of the city. And we're going to gather with that mission together and we're going to um, use our gifts. And that's a micro church. And then you come back together for centralized worship. 
Um, I did this on the mission field. We called them COGS or Communities of Grace. And we did exactly that. We had a reading club, a film club, yada, yada. So, okay, next question is, Peyton, thanks for filling this. I joined a few minutes ago, so forgive me if it was already asked. It wasn't. Um, What do you think separates a small group from a micro church, and what makes a micro church a micro church and not a Bible study? So, actually, I did answer this one, and that is basically mission. Mission is the key. Um, If you go to a small group, you're going to center around content right? You're going you're gonna to go to the Bible study. You're going to study something for 20, 30 minutes. Then you're going to discuss it and everybody gets to discuss. Now that's super helpful. I think that's super, super valuable. So what we often do in the church is we go, well, <laughs> you know, I'm in a missional community. So, you know, you kind of snub your nose at, it's not a small group, right? Um, we do life on life. Well, if you look at the biblical definition of discipleship, there are three things that Jesus did. If you're you're like, oh, where did he get these from? I got them from the Bible. Uh, Jesus did, number one, it says he taught his disciples. He was always teaching them. Number two, he spent 24-7 for three years with them. That is life on life. So there's fellowship right? Life on life, getting, you know, like Paul says in Thessalonians chapter two, we didn't just share the gospel with you. We shared our very selves. And then the third thing is the thing we never do. So like, um, if you have missional community, um, what you've done is you've said, well, we want to do the life on life. A lot of mission actually doesn't happen in missional community. And that's why, and I'm not saying if you're a missional community and you're like, oh, I'm really offended. Maybe they didn't yours, but I do a lot of consulting and a lot of meeting with leaders from missional churches and they're stuck too because they get the life on life thing down, but they haven't really done the mission. So to answer your question, what rather than centering around content or centering around fellowship, a micro church really centers around mission. And that separates cats from dogs, men from boys, girls from women. Um, that That's the defining distinctive. And it's fun as heck. It gets addictive. Um, it's like having uh, small, uh, short-term missions in your church nonstop. Okay. So how would you approach another question? Explaining the, we got two minutes. Explaining the micro church fresh expressions model to people who are only familiar with institutional church. I'm in the Bible belt and it can be hard for people to fully understand the concept. I'll tell you, just answering this with an eye on the clock, model it, just go do it and invite people into it. Um, Often I've found that if, if you're trying to convince someone with concepts, a lot of people need to see it. That's why we really res- resonate with stories. If I tell you, hey, I want to go in and I want to start church in an abandoned motel that's now a crack house, and I don't actually go do it and show you what works, once you do it, everybody wants to join. You know, it's like stone soup right? No one wants to contribute until they taste it and go, oh, that's good. I think I have something to put in that. So just go model it. Just go do it. And that's what Jesus said. He just started bringing the kingdom and uh, people started following. So, and same with Paul, right? He, he started reaching the Gentiles before it was cool. So um, a question, how does this differ in your mind to the concept of parachurch? Well, um, it is really the church itself expressing itself throughout different um, uh, missions in the community. So that's what's great is uh, if I have a five-year plan as a senior leader, and I, by the way, I'm all about team leadership. It's a pass for me all the way. But let's say a traditional model is senior pastor. He's got a board and they work out their five-year plan. At the end of that five-year plan, right? It's this is our mission and this is what we're going to do. This, um, and I do have a book, and, and I'm not going to promote it, but um, the, 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 what I called this years ago was gift-driven ministry. In other words, you look at the gifts of the people around you, and you activate and let the believers in your midst go do it. And um, the question I'll often ask my team when I'm planting is, what's that thing that when you first got saved you want to do, and you got really excited, and you went and talked to leadership, and they told you, no, you can't do that? that's connected to your spiritual gift somehow. And deep down, you still want to do that and just go do it. If you've read Brian Sanders' book, Underground, he talks very practically about how his role was that equipping role of Ephesians 4 to empower the saints for the work of the ministry. So it's not parachurch. Parachurch is great. I work for a parachurch, um, but in exponentials of parachurch, you know, here's the thing is you, um, you, it is expressions of the church you attend, answering the needs 
uh, of mission within its community. And I'm looking at the clock. Um, join us next week again. I want to thank you for joining us. Um, looking at the clock here, we want to let you go. I've gone over a minute, which is naughty. But uh, anyways, guys, thanks for joining us today. Um, glad to have this conversation. Wanted to get to these questions uh, within our limited time. But this conversation gets bigger and better. So come join us next week. And uh, don't forget to sign up for our roundtables at multiplication.org forward slash roundtables. We've got a series of roundtables kicking off on diversity. And uh, we'll announce some very cool roundtables coming up in future. Want to thank you on behalf of Exponential. And we'll see you next time.